Good morning, everybody. It is a wonderful morning. It's always wonderful when we get to come and worship God. And uh, this morning, I'm going to invite you right away to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. I'm going to read a portion of today's passage starting in verse 17, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll see what God's Word has to say to us. And so Mark 10, I'll start in verse 17. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, an opportunity for us to gather and to worship you. And Father, as we open your word here in Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 10, Father, I pray that you would teach us in a way that it would transform our lives, that we would walk away more like Jesus. And I pray that we would be like him, and how he treated others, and how he walked, how he talked, how he conducted his life here on earth. I pray, God, that we would be like Jesus today and every day. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The title of this morning's message is The Price of Admission. The price of admission. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and we'll go all the way to verse 31. And we're approaching the end of Act 2 of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us in his gospel. Now, if you've been with us for much of this series, I'm going to ask for your help, okay? Because you hear me every so often kind of go back and review parts of the different acts. And so if you've been with us, feel free to follow along. Act 1 takes place between chapter 1 and 8a. Good. So Act 1 takes place between chapter 1 and 8a, and it takes place in the region of Galilee. Good. So Act 1, chapters 1 through 8a, and it takes place in the region of Galilee. And in Act 1, the crowds, they witness Jesus performing all these miracles, healings, casting out of 
impure spirits, and they find themselves constantly asking the question, who is this Jesus? They marvel at his works. Who is this Jesus? That's act one. Act two takes place between chapters 8b and 10. And we're right there in act two. And act two takes place on the way from where? Galilee to where? Jerusalem. And in act two, where we're in right now, it's not the crowds who are asking the question. Who's asking the question? The disciples. And they're not asking, wow, who is this Jesus? They're asking a very different question. They're asking, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And they wrestle. They struggle with that question because the answer to that question has implications for their own lives. Act 3 takes place between chapters 11 and 16, and it takes place in Jerusalem. And the focal point of Act 3 is on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. Next Sunday is our final message in Act 2 before we begin Act 3 the following week. Now, we just read that Jesus was on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem when a man comes running up to him and kneels down before Jesus and asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Now, Jesus was not denying his deity there. What he was doing was he's really ultimately putting the young man to a test to see how this young man would respond. This account is found in three Gospels, Matthew, here in Mark as well, and then also in Luke. And here's what we know about this man. One, he's morally upright. Right? He said, teacher, I've followed all these commandments since I was a little boy. So he's morally upright. He's successful. He's a ruler of some sorts. And he's rich. He has lots of money. So, According to society, then and now, you would say that he had everything he could hope for. Morally upright, successful, rich. In many ways, he was a model citizen. But we can tell by his question that there was something missing in his life. Good teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal Life. He genuinely wanted to know. There was this void, this emptiness in his life. And you see, if he was completely content, he would not have asked that question. And his case is not unique. There are people today who are morally upright, successful, maybe have a certain amount of wealth, and yet deep down inside, they know that there's something missing. Now, I have to imagine that when this young man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him, that he wasn't acting purely on emotion. He wasn't making a rash decision, spur of the moment. 
No. He had already observed Jesus perform these miracles. He saw Jesus heal people. He saw Jesus cast out demons. In fact, this man, you might think, he was probably one of the people in the crowd who found himself asking the question, wow, who is this Jesus? So he observed Jesus. This was not some spontaneous, rash, spur-of-the-moment decision. He ran to Jesus after seeing all this and after considering what he had seen. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, I imagine he thought through that question. You see, because based on his credentials, he wasn't the kind of person who would just make a rash decision. My thought is that he looked at life through a checklist system. What I mean by that is this. He probably saw his life. He probably saw the line financial status, and there was a box next to it, check, secure. He probably saw the box next to um, career, check, I got a good career. He probably saw the box next to family life, got that as well. And then he probably came to the box next to spiritual life. He probably thought, hmm, I don't see a check mark in that box. So he sought out Jesus. One commentator says this, when he, the young ruler, met Jesus, Jesus helped him to realize that a relationship with him isn't just a piece of the pie that makes up our lives. Now let's think about a pie for a moment. I like pie, especially banana cream pie, okay? I like banana cream pie, but to be honest, I like every kind of pie. And fall is coming, right? Which means pumpkin pie. And I love pumpkin pie with whipped cream on top, with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on the side. Hmm. I love pie. Now, when we think about a pie and we see the slices, oftentimes we kind of look at our lives that way. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, if we don't consider what it truly means to follow Jesus, in other words, if we don't count the cost of following Jesus, then we might just end up approaching our spiritual lives as if it's just one piece of the pie. This past week, I decided to come up with a pie just to kind of show you a visual of what life might look like if we just give one slice to Jesus. Here, take a look. This is how our lives might look. Here's a seven-piece pie. You've got family, friends, finances, education, leisure, career, and you've got Jesus. And so this is often how people approach their spiritual lives. We might give Jesus one slice of the pie, maybe on a Sunday morning, maybe for an hour, or if you're really spiritual, two hours, okay? So we might just give Jesus one slice of our lives. And for many people today who just want to add a little religion into their lives, 
what happens is they're content with that pie. They're content with Jesus staying right there within his slice. But did you know that that pie could not be further from the experience of those in the New Testament who followed Jesus? You see, we can't just add Jesus to a pie and just give him one slice. Following Jesus must transform our entire lives. And when faced with this reality, the rich young ruler who just wanted a little religion in his life, what happened? His head dropped and he went away sad because he was unwilling to give up his most treasured possession. That was his wealth, all of his possessions. But in reality, it wasn't simply just his possessions that he was unwilling to let go of. Ultimately, he was saying this, I am unwilling to make Jesus Lord of my life. That's what he was saying. He went to Jesus seeking security and comforts. But when faced with the hefty price of admission, he said, no, thank you. There's a price of admission into God's kingdom. But it's not what many people think it is. You see, the rich young ruler, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was so accustomed to following the law. And so he figured, well, all he had to do was uh, maybe continue being a morally good person. But the message that Jesus gives to this rich young ruler is, you know what? If you want eternal life, follow me. In other words, obey me. Whenever Jesus says follow, what he really means is obey. If you want eternal life, obey me. I want to take you to a passage that we looked at earlier in our series, back in chapter 8. So go back to chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. In chapter 8, starting in verse 34, it says this, Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Now, that's not a very good sales pitch if you're at a motivational conference. Who would give that type of a sales pitch? But you see, Jesus wanted to make sure up front that the people understood that there is no fine print. There is no bait and switch. The crowds knew exactly what they were signing up for. And that's why along the way, some people, they just turned and went back because the cost was too high for them. The crowds knew exactly what it meant to take up 
the cross. Now, here in our church, we have a beautiful, shiny cross. But the reality is, the cross at that time, it was a symbol of shame and humiliation. And Jesus wanted to make sure that people knew what they were getting themselves into. We sang the song earlier, bear the cross as we wait for the crown. The cross was shameful. It was humiliating. Jesus wanted to make sure that the people knew that they were going to take up their own cross as well. Salvation, it involves a total life surrender. It means giving up the entire pie to Jesus. And that's very different than giving Jesus one slice of your pie. You know, throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches his disciples about the paradoxes of life in the kingdom of God. And here's what we want to know about this. Whenever Jesus talks to his disciples about the paradoxes of God's kingdom, he sympathizes with them. He, he understands them. He certainly knew what it would mean for him to take up the cross, and he knew what it would mean for his disciples to take up their cross. You see, earlier, Peter urged Jesus to save his life. Jesus, save my life. Save my life. And as we saw in chapter 8, Jesus responds with a paradox, showing how life is to be gained. And so he said, disciples, if you want to save your life, here's how you do it. Lose it. If you want eternal life, give up your life as you know it. In order to gain life, you need to lose it. That's paradox. That's the paradox of the kingdom of God. In other words, give up control of your life. And he said to the crowds, if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. But as we'll see in just a minute, Peter is still a little bit insecure. Let's go back to our passage for today. Go back to chapter 10, and we'll pick it up now in verse 23. Chapter 10, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Now look at verse 28. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Earlier, Peter said, Jesus, save my life. And Jesus responded by saying, if you want to save your life, then lose it. But here, Peter's like, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. And when he said everything, he meant everything. 
Peter was a fisherman. A fisherman found security in nets. Those nets were big. They were expensive. They were the lifeline for a fisherman. Peter gave up his nets. He left the family business. And I have to imagine his family was not happy that he left the family business to follow Jesus. And so here's how Jesus responds. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Allow me for a minute here to share what this passage does not mean, okay? It does not mean if we give $100 to the church, that eventually we will see a deposit in our bank account for $10,000. That would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not what it means. It does not mean if we sell our house and give the entire proceeds to the church, or if we sell our house and give even 50% of the proceeds to the church, or if we sell our house and give 10% of the proceeds to church, what this does not mean is that God's going to give us a bigger house. Sadly, there are preachers who preach that. And sadly, there are people as well-intentioned as they may be who actually believe that. If, if I give, if I give my offering to the church, then, then God's going to reward me with more money. And sometimes people give out of fear. If I don't give, then God's going to withhold blessing me with more money. So oftentimes people have a very warped view of giving. Here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. If we invest our lives in the kingdom of God, Yes, we will face persecution in this life. That's what he said. But we can be certain that we will also experience the spiritual blessings of following Christ. And here's how it plays out in our lives. When we invest our lives in serving others, those in need, when we serve those who are less fortunate than we are, less privileged than we are. And then when we see their lives transformed by the gospel, that is priceless. That's worth far more than a hundred times 
our investment in their lives. Here's another way it fleshes out in our lives. If we give to support a missionary, and later on we receive a newsletter from the missionary, thanks in part to your support, we were able to share the gospel. We saw 10 people come to Christ. We saw 100 people come to Christ. We saw an orphanage being built. Certainly, that spiritual blessing is worth far more than 100 times our investment into that missionary's life. Here's another example. When we meet new people, let's say you come to church and you meet new people who then become not only friends but lifelong partners in the gospel, we experience true family. Jesus says that we will find security in those spiritual blessings. When we invest spiritually, here's what we're not supposed to do. We don't take out our calculator on our phone and we don't punch all the numbers to make sure that we're getting a good deal on our spiritual investment. That's not what this passage is saying. What Jesus says is if you leave behind a life that you think is secure and you follow me, I will show you what true certainty looks like. And church, can I say this? And I know that many of you experience this. Our spiritual investment never comes back void. It never comes back void. Now I'm going to jump ahead to next week's passage for just a minute before we come back to today's passage. Go to verse 43 and verse 44. We're going to look at this passage next week. But I'm going to jump ahead here. Verse 43. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Next week, we're going to go over these verses and the surrounding verses in more detail. But here's the context for now. James and John asked Jesus for a favor. You remember James and John, right? They were on the mountaintop. They saw Jesus being transfigured. They were there with Peter. And so James and John, they go to Jesus and they ask him for a favor. They figured, okay, we're part of this inner circle. There's only one, one other person, Peter. It's like the three of us. We're like the inner circle of Jesus. And so James and John, these two brothers, they go to Jesus and they ask him if they can have the best seats in heaven next to him when he sits on his throne. In a stadium, in a concert hall, the best seats are often reserved for the most important people. So James and John figured we are the most important people. After all, we saw Jesus being transformed on that mountaintop. And here's what Jesus is saying to them in verses 43 and 44. Here's what Jesus is essentially saying to these two brothers. James John, if you want the best seats in my kingdom, 
They're way in the back, way up top. And be sure to take your binoculars because in my kingdom, James and John, you will gladly give up your seats to others. And here's what Jesus says in the final verse in today's passage. Verse 31. But many who are great, who are the greatest now, will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So I'm going to recap what we've been talking about for the last several minutes. Remember, Peter asked Jesus to save his life. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, lose it. Peter, still uncertain, says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Peter, speaking on behalf of the entire disciples, told Jesus, we're not feeling very secure following you. And Jesus says, if you follow me, I will show you what security looks like. And then here we just saw James and John. They wanted to be the greatest in heaven. And Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, go sit in the nosebleed sections, way up the top. Life, security, greatness. Life, security, greatness. Those were the three things the disciples wanted. And here's the astonishing thing. In each of those cases, Jesus does not say, disciples, you shouldn't care about your life. He doesn't say, disciples, you don't need security. He doesn't even say, disciples, you shouldn't want to be great. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus say, you shouldn't want to be great. Instead, here's what Jesus does. He appeals to their desire for those things, life, security, and greatness, and then he redirects their energies. He says, ah, oh, disciples, if you really want life, then lose it for my sake. If you want true security, then here's what you do. Leave behind everything that represents security in this world. And then follow me. And then he says, if you want lasting greatness, be last. If you want lasting greatness, be last. Become a servant. That's the paradox of life in the kingdom of God. And sadly, the rich young ruler, he was unwilling to do what it would take to follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, you know, it is so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is so hard when you have money. He said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus was using hyperbole there. Okay? He was exaggerating. You know, most of us, we have a hard time threading a needle, don't we, right? 
We, we moisten the tip of that thread, and we, we get it right by the, the hole, and then it sprays, and then it just frays right open. And you do it again and again. It's so hard. It's next to impossible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Guess what? It's so hard to enter the kingdom of God because I can confidently say this. As I look around this worship center, I can confidently say that we are all rich. We are all rich. And that's why it's so hard to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I know that rich can be uh, relative, right? Rich compared to whom? Okay. But let's look at it this way. I don't want you to raise your hands, but think about this question. This morning when you woke up, how many of you had options for what to wear? Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say every one of us had options. Okay? Because I see you every week, and I see you wearing different clothes every week, and so you have options, right? Now, I know that sometimes we'll go to our closet and say, I don't have a thing to wear. What we really mean is, I don't want to wear a single item in my closet full of clothes. So if you have options, then compared to some parts of the world, we're rich. Shoes. My guess is we all have at least one or two or five or 20 pairs of shoes. Do I hear 30? Do I hear 40? We all have many, many pairs of shoes. Okay. And what that means is we have the luxury of coordinating our shoes with our outfit. So today when you woke up and you put on your outfit, then you decided, okay, what shoes will go with this outfit? So we have the luxury. That doesn't mean we always get it right, okay? But we have the luxury of trying. So if we have five or ten pairs of shoes, wow, we're rich. And my guess is the vast majority of us here at least, at least have five pairs of shoes. At least, at the very very least. I hear, I hear laughing, right? I hear laughing, right? Like, come on, five, come on. Multiply that by like two or three or five or 20. And I don't say that to make us feel guilty. That's the reality. I look at my closet. I look at my garage. We use bookshelves for shoe shelves. We have such an abundance of choices, don't we? How about cars, right? Most of us drove here this morning, and if you walked, you just did it by choice, probably. But most of us drove here, and some of you, you even had to ask yourself the question, hmm, which car should I take today? Some people in the world, they, 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 they go, wait, you mean you, you not only have one car, you, you can choose between cars? And then, and then when they find out that we drive our cars into our houses, they're just blown away. Wait, 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 what? You actually have a house for your car? We call that a garage. And your car sleeps in your house? 
Some people in the world, they just can't fathom that. Your car sleeps in your house? Maybe you've heard me share this research before. Uh, in one study, researchers asked people who earned $30,000 a year what it would take for them to truly be happy. And they said, well, $60,000 a year. And then the researchers asked a group of people who make $50,000 a year, what would it take to be happy? $100,000. And then they asked people who make $100,000, and they said, well, $200,000. And then the researchers asked people who made a million dollars a year what it would make them, what would it take to make them happy. And you would think based upon that pattern, they would say $2 million, when in fact, those who made a million dollars, the most common answer was, to be happy, I need $5 million. The reality is, the more we have, the less we tend to appreciate what we do have. And again, I don't say that to make us feel guilty because let's face it, we are all rich. That's just the reality for many, many people. And it's not until things are taken away from us that we truly appreciate what we had. And that's why bankruptcy, and maybe some of you have faced bankruptcy, that's why bankruptcy is a sobering experience for people. And here's the thing about bankruptcy from a spiritual standpoint. You and I can only experience the kingdom of God when we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. That's the only way that you and I can experience the kingdom of God, when we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. When it comes to salvation, God doesn't help those who help themselves. You know, our socioeconomic status, it doesn't get us into heaven. Our good works don't get us into heaven. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was trying to work himself into heaven. He went to Jesus. He's like, wow, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out that I'm on the fast track to heaven because I'm morally good, I'm successful, I have some money, and I'm ready to give to the kingdom of God, and boom, Jesus slaps him spiritually upside the head and says, no, 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 you are spiritually bankrupt, but you don't know it. Earlier, we talked about Peter. His brother was Andrew. We talked about James and John, fishermen. They were poor, blue-collar fishermen. There was another disciple who was not poor. He was wealthy. His name was Matthew. He had a big house, lots of money. But before Jesus called Matthew and the others, they all shared one thing in common. They were spiritually bankrupt. In order for us to experience the kingdom of heaven, we must recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. And then from there, we must yield ourselves to God. In other words, surrender ourselves to Him. When we surrender ourselves to someone else, what we're doing is we're giving up control. 
And that's a hard thing for most of us to do. That's because in our society, from a very young age, we are taught the importance of self-reliance. And we're taught the importance of self-confidence. The Bible says, trust in the Lord. The Bible says, don't depend on your own understanding. So, and this, this is for those of us here, especially those students. When you go through life and when you hear things like, trust in yourself, believe in yourself, go with your gut instinct, just remember, the Bible says, trust in the Lord. Don't depend on yourself. The story of the rich young ruler, in essence, it's a warning to all of us. It's a warning to those who want a religion that will not upset their lifestyle. Think about that. The account of the rich young ruler is a warning to all of us. It's a warning to those who want religion, but a religion that will not upset their lifestyle. We just want Jesus to stay in that one slice of the pie. We'll give him that one slice, and I'll take all the other slices. If we want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and not simply give him one slice of the pie, then it's time to fully surrender ourselves to him. And this week, if I can ask you to do this, this week as you spend time with God, ask him, is there an area of my life that I've not fully surrendered to you? I imagine for some of us, I imagine for all of us, we can look at our lives and say, you know what, there's an area that I need to fully surrender to Jesus. For some, you know what that might mean? For some, that might mean a career path that doesn't look like what you wanted it to look like. For some, what it might mean is, you know what? I'm going to serve Jesus in a place and in a way that society will look at and say, wow, you're not that successful. And for some, what that might mean is, I'm going to give up everything that I have. For Jesus. I can't answer that for us. Only you can answer that. But maybe for some here, that's been on your heart. And this week, my prayer is that you will examine your life, that I will examine my life, and ask, is there an area that I'm holding on to that it's time to just give up 
to Jesus. And for many of us, that's often tied to money. That's the issue that the rich young ruler faced, and he was unwilling to give up his possessions because he didn't want Jesus to disrupt his lifestyle. And so this is a warning for us. It's not an easy passage. We are all rich. It's time for us to examine our lives and say, Jesus, it's time for me to give up control to you. Do as you please. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the series. Thank you for uh, penetrating our hearts with your word each and every week. Father, you know, God, that it's been such a, um, a rich time of study for me. And I trust, God, for every one of us as we study, as we listen to your word, God, that you teach us new things and you remind us of things that we've heard that we need to hear again. And Father, today I pray that this week as we move forward from here, that we will not quickly forget your word, that we would uh, heed the warning. Lord, we know that the rich young ruler walked away with his head lowered, walked away in sadness. I pray that we would not do that, God, that we'd be ready to give up control to you an area of our lives that, Lord, that we've been holding on to so tightly. And so, Father, give us the courage, give us, Lord, the obedience to do just that this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.